0: Cancer patients like those I treat in San Diego and thousands more across the country are facing an alarming shortage of critical chemotherapy drugs, forcing oncologists to ration cancer treatment doses for patients with curable diseases. That's right. If you have cancer right now in the United States, the treatment you need might not be obtainable. I honestly don't understand why patients are not riding in the streets about this. The generic cancer drug shortage can be fixed, but only if the private sector and policymakers each pursue ideas to fix it permanently. Cancer patients' lives depend on it.
1: That was Kristen Rice, who is a medical oncologist treating patients at Medical Oncology Associates of San Diego. She was reading from her recent First Opinion essay on generic cancer drug shortages. I'll bring you our conversation about the constant race to find the drugs her patients need after a quick break.
0: I'm Jesse McQuarters, branded content editor for STAT. Recognizing the breadth and diversity of America's 53 million family caregivers, how can we better know and see these important unsung heroes? Lisa Wilson, head of caregiver advancement strategy and experience at United Healthcare offers insights. Family caregivers are a cornerstone of our health system, but it can be challenging to support them in the moments that matter. UnitedHealthcare is breaking down the barriers to identifying and engaging caregivers. For example, we're making it easy for caregivers to establish necessary HIPAA permissions and encouraging self-identification. The more we know about this population, the more we see them, especially early on in their caregiving journey, the better support we can provide. For more information, visit UHC.com
1: caregiving. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is DETS' platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large. Written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Kristen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So how long have you been an oncologist? I've been in practice for about 12 years now. And when did you first start noticing the shortages of the generic drugs that you use every day?
0: I would say it's been going on, on and off for maybe the last five or six years, could be a little bit longer.
1: But it's gotten worse recently, right? What's been going on in the past, what, six months? Or how long has it been really acute? It's been really
0: bad for the past month, month and a half. Um, We are currently facing a critical shortage of both cisplatin and carboplatin, and it's never been this bad before. We have had shortages of different drugs on and off over the past several years, and it's stressful. You know, we do what we can um, to secure the doses that patients need. You know, we move things around, uh, and usually we're able to get through without any significant interruption to patients' treatment. But this shortage has been so severe that it's actually gotten to the point of having to ration care in a way that I don't think oncologists in the U.S. have ever had to do.
1: And that's so scary, you know, as someone who is not currently a cancer patient, but, you know, all of us could be any day. Um, You know, what is your day-to-day work life like as you try to navigate these shortages? Um, Yeah, so in addition to
0: what is usually a very busy day? We now are having to look. Um, we usually sit down once a week and go through our chemo schedule and look at what our need is. Um, we used to only keep a few days' worth of inventory on hand. You know, so we would be ordering chemo drugs as we needed them, three to four days in advance. But since the shortage, we've really needed to look farther down the road. So now we're trying to look two, three weeks in the future and see what our need is so that we can adapt and do what we need to do to get patients their doses. Um, So we've been sitting down and running through a list of who's up for treatment in the coming weeks and making some decisions. Um, For some patients, if they're on what's called palliative chemotherapy, where um, our goal is just to control the cancer and hopefully manage the the symptoms and the distress that's caused by the cancer, um, but cure isn't in the cards, um, those patients we feel a little bit more comfortable making some small dose reductions to try to spread the dose around. Or sometimes we can um, delay treatment by a week or so to maybe give us some more lead time to acquire drug. But patients who are undergoing treatment with curative intent, we don't have that kind of wiggle room. They have to be treated according to protocol, or we worry that they may not achieve the outcome that we want for them. And so those patients, some of them we've had to Um, send elsewhere to get treatment. Uh, The hospital is able to secure a bigger supply of drug than we can. Their allocation is larger and they can keep a bigger stockpile on hand, more like 45 days worth of inventory. Um, So fortunately, our partner hospital has been able to absorb some of those patients and help us get them treated.
1: Now, I imagine that as you're making these decisions, you are speaking with your patients about how the shortage is affecting their care. What are those conversations like for you?
0: They're so stressful Um, because the patients are already under a lot of stress. They're dealing with a cancer diagnosis and they're terrified. And the last thing they want to hear is that something that's critical to controlling their cancer might not be available. And we're wondering where the next dose is going to come from. It's an awful feeling. Um, And Mine is the face that they see. So I feel responsible, even though I actually can't do
1: anything about this. What is it that they want to know when you tell them that there are these shortages? What questions do they tend to have for you? They're curious why it's happening. And mostly
0: they just want to know when it's over and when is life going to go back to normal? When can they stop worrying?
1: And so I guess we haven't touched on this really quite yet, but why is this happening? What is the cause of this problem that you've seen sort of prop up occasionally over the past several years, but has really become acute in the past month?
0: Well, I will start by saying that I'm learning about this as I go. Um, As as an oncologist, my job is to understand the treatment of cancer, not all the nuts and bolts of, you know, how the sausage gets made, if you will. (laughs) Um, But but I'm trying to learn about how this process works. Um, So the shortages are, are all Older generic drugs that have been around for a really long time. They're off patent. uh, And quite frankly, no one makes much money from producing these medications. So there's not a lot of incentive for manufacturers to make them anymore. Consequently, um, not that many manufacturers are making them. And so when we have a quality control problem at a factory somewhere that shuts down production in one area, Um, the problem is that the other few manufacturers who might be making this particular drug, they're already running at sort of a razor thin margin and they're not able to ramp up production to compensate for one factory being out of commission. Um, sometimes that can be something like a natural disaster. Um, I was looking back this morning, I remember a few years back and I guess it was 2018, Um, Hurricane Maria um, caused a great deal of damage in Puerto Rico, and one of the things that happened was that several of the factories that make the, the IV saline bags that we use to administer our medications was damaged severely by the storm. And so suddenly there was a critical national shortage of IV bags, which is such a basic thing. You know, if you can have all of the medication in the world, but if you don't have something to put the medication in to administer it to the patient, you've got a really serious problem. Um, and again, there's sort of no, there's no backup plan and there's no surge capacity anywhere else in the system um, because the manufacturers are trying to save as much money as possible.
1: You know, it's striking how this just seems to be a, a repeat year after year, right? You know, in 2018, as you say, it was the IV bags. 2020, it was PPE and COVID. Um, Earlier this year, of course, we were talking a great deal about shortages of antibiotics for children or about Adderall shortages. So it does seem like these problems just kind of jump from one part of the healthcare system to another, right? And it's almost like it feels sometimes like legislators are trying to tackle you know, this one particular problem rather than the phenomenon behind all of these problems, right, of, short of sort of um, focusing all resources in one place geographically to produce these, um, these really necessary pieces of equipment and drugs. Right. So
0: as you pointed out, this problem isn't unique to cancer chemotherapy. There are antibiotics that are in critical shortage, too. There's no one person or organization who is making sure that adequate amounts of these critical medications are being produced. And I don't think the average person really thinks about that or understands that. There are medications that are critical for your health and your life that rest on these shaky supply chains, um, that can be easily disrupted by a natural disaster or a quality control problem.
1: You know, and one thing you mentioned was that you very recently became something of an advocate for this, right? Um, So can you tell me a little bit about what that's looking like for you uh, joining this advocacy space here? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we've been
0: battling one shortage after another year after year. And during the shortages, we kind of just put our heads down and work as hard as we can to get through the shortage. Um, and then as soon as the shortage is over, we sort of go back to business as usual. And finally, I just decided enough. We, we have to say something about this. Something needs to be done about this. It's getting worse. We have looming drug shortages on um, other important products right now, too, Our practice recently joined a national organization called One Oncology. Um, And so being part of this larger national organization um, allows us to get some additional help and leverage in situations like this. So um, I just recently joined our advocacy committee, and I thought maybe these people know something about this issue. Maybe there is some ongoing legislation in progress So I started by just posting on our Slack channel about the shortages and wanted to find out what's going on and should we be devoting some advocacy effort toward this.
1: You know, and it's interesting because when I think of advocacy in the healthcare space, I I really think of the cancer community of of patients, of practitioners, you know, the work that has been done around awareness and fundraising for all sorts of cancer-related issues is just so impressive if you look over the past few decades. Do you think that um, there's a way to sort of leverage that advocacy in here in terms of making a difference on these drug shortages? I mean, you mentioned in your article and in the excerpt you read that you thought patients should be riding the streets over this. Are you talking to any patients about advocacy around this issue?
0: Uh, I am. I have some patients that are really motivated to uh, do what they can to find solutions. You know, the kind of patients who are already regularly writing their representatives about other issues. Yeah, it's time for patients and physicians to get angry about this and to demand some solutions.
1: Which, of course, feels, you know, sort of unfair in so many ways, too. I mean, I know I asked, is there a way to bring patients in? But as you mentioned, your work is already so busy. These are patients who are already dealing with a scary diagnosis, you know, even one that's treatable or curable. So, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about that kind of emotional burden. I mean, are are you doing okay? First of all, to having to manage these conversations all day,
0: I'm doing okay. And honestly, even though I'm I'm um, up late at night emailing and researching um, to to do this, this advocacy is my outlet, and this. This helps me feel better. Feeling like I'm doing something about the problem helps me feel better about it.
1: And how about your patients? I mean, you know, without going into to specifics that might violate privacy, I mean, what are are they emotional when you tell them about this? Um, are they angry? How do they sort of respond besides sort of asking questions? Everybody handles the news really
0: differently, um, very much like. Um, People handle the news of a cancer diagnosis very differently. Um, I think we as oncologists, we're sort of used to delivering bad news. I will say that um, as bad as things are here in California, we are learning that our colleagues on the East Coast are having an even more difficult time. I've heard from some of the practices there, the shortage is so severe that they're actually not able to treat any patient whose cancer is not curable and that they've had to cut doses even on patients with curable diseases. So I can't even imagine the conversations that those people are having to have.
1: As someone who lives on the East Coast with with friends undergoing treatment, you know, that's just so scary to hear. Do you know why it seems to be worse on the East Coast than the West Coast? I don't. I have theories about it. I
0: think there may just be um, a larger concentration of oncology practices on the East Coast, but I
1: don't know that for sure. Oh, that makes sense. Um, you know, has there been much discussion about potential disparities um, with the shortage? You know, are our patients who are not as well off, you know, facing a harder time with shortages, or, or in what way are, are you maybe seeing disparities play out here?
0: There are a lot of areas where. Disparities in healthcare affect cancer patients. This one's pretty equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a shortage of a drug that that costs like six dollars a dose. Um, it's it's very inexpensive. Um, where patients with um, fewer financial resources or Um, who are uninsured or underinsured run into trouble is often with the newer, much more expensive medications. Um, Our professional societies have provided us with some guidelines for how to ration the available drug to make sure that the distribution is as equitable as possible. So that also helps a little bit with the moral distress, because at least Mm -hmm. we don't feel like we're making those decisions entirely on our own.
1: I'm just sort of curious, if you were talking to someone, to a a legislator, about what changes need to be made, what are the sort of really practical things that could be happening both short-term and long-term to kind of address this sort of shortage? You know, I'm not sure
0: I know enough about the issue to really propose good solutions. Um, And I know that some of the solutions are not going to be appealing to some so one of the major challenges in oncology is that as new and better drugs are coming onto the market, they are increasingly expensive. And there's a huge effort, which is absolutely necessary, to try to figure out a way to control the cost of cancer care, which is just exploding. Um, so there's a lot of work going on at trying to figure out how to rein in some of those costs. But uh, one of the unintended consequences of that is that um, reducing drug manufacturers profits may even further disincentivize them to produce these cheaper medications that they earn little or no money on. So we have to figure out another way to make sure that those critical medications are getting produced. Do we subsidize or somehow financially incentivize them to produce the minimum amount of medication that we need? Um, Or do we provide some other type of incentive? That's one solution that's been floated. Um, I think some places the government just takes over managing the production of critical medications. That's something that would be probably a pretty hard sell here in the U.S.,
1: Are insurance companies playing any role here? You know, have you been able to work with them at all in in finding alternatives or are they sort of hands off on this kind of thing?
0: I don't know that there's much insurance companies can do about this particular issue. Um, The problem here is just that old generic drugs are very inexpensive um, and it's not profitable to produce them. So we, we simply have a problem of, of underproduction of these things. And um, I don't know that our payers can help much with that unless somehow the structure of how these are reimbursed changes.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, if they were to say, if you, you're saying it's, you know, $6 for a particular treatment, if they offer eight, for instance, you know, just sort of like a, a high percentage offer might but I don't know what I'm talking about here. So so that might not actually be a solution.
0: Right. Um, and and I, I don't know what would be the best solution either, but we do need to find some way to make sure that adequate amounts of these critical medications are getting made consistently. And there does need to be a backup plan if something happens that interrupts the
1: supply chain somewhere Absolutely. And is there anything else that you would like listeners to know about this issue? I think another thing to think about, um,
0: particularly to those who may be more sensitive to what we're asking of the drug manufacturers who are trying to, trying to turn a profit and trying to make a living, um, is that one of the unintended consequences of shortage of cheaper generic drugs? Is that this is going to drive up healthcare costs because we're going to be forced to use more of the newer, more expensive drugs, um, and unfortunately, that's that's yet another disincentive for producing those cheaper drugs. Is that? patients will have to use the more expensive stuff. Um, It also creates an opportunity for price gouging. So when there's a shortage of a medication that's usually very inexpensive, then suppliers can start to charge more for it. Yes, we have a little bit, but this week you're going to pay $12,000 for it. Um, So that's an important thing to recognize too that's going on.
1: Oh, that's terrifying. Dr. Kristen Rice, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having
0: me. I'm just so happy that people are listening and starting to generate some conversation about
1: this. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners, so let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast and the column should take on. You can do that by emailing me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please do leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself.